Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer coronavirus update. If you're in lockdown, just like me, don't worry. I've put together some of the best bits from my talk radio breakfast show into this daily podcast so you won't miss any of the day's biggest coronavirus updates. Enjoy and stay safe. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. Let's talk to Dr. David Nabarro. He's Special Envoy on COVID-19 to the World Health Organization. He's also Professor of Global Health at Imperial College London. Good morning to you. Good morning, Julia. Good morning to all your listeners. Yes, lovely to speak to you once again. Um, in, in terms of some of the criticisms that we heard from Sir Keir Starmer, the uh, uh, Labour leader yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions, about the, the government having been slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on protective equipment, and now slow to take up offers from British firms. I know you don't want to get involved in, in, in party politics at all, but uh, do you think any of those criticisms have validity? Are any of them right? So what I'm really interested in now is how we're going to move forward. And... Uh, just listening to all the comments on your news just now and also even to the advertisement that we heard, uh, the, the comment was these are going to be extraordinary times and we're going to have to shift the way in which we behave, but we're going to have to do it in a very thought-through way. And I suppose the thing that I would really say about how I'm seeing things in the UK is that there is a lot of very careful thinking going on with the public health people talking to different uh, actors in government and they're saying, well, we are going to be able to find a new way of living and a new way of working, and that is going to be the future, and let's focus on that. You know, I'm not going to actually look back and say things could have been done differently with hindsight. That's not helpful. What matters now is moving forward. And as I keep saying to people, there'll be so many opportunities for forensic analysis of what's happened in the past. Let's do those when we've got through the current crisis and they're able to at least have the luxury of being able to look back. Indeed, I think there'll be a lot of people listening to that and nodding along. Yeah, absolutely, we should have scrutiny, of course. But again, we are where we are, and we did start uh, yes. from a, uh, you know, from. I mean, I mean, I think there's not really a single government in the world that isn't getting some criticism for how they've dealt with this. And of course, we know that the governments that have done very well, um, even like Germany, they're still getting criticism at home. And even in South Korea, of course, yep. a lot of those Southeast Asian countries, they started in a way uh, way ahead of us simply because they had had the experience of uh, other coronavirus epidemics previously, which luckily we didn't suffer. From. From. Yeah, and, I, and you're absolutely right. The countries of East Asia had a kind of dress rehearsal with a coronavirus that caused something called severe acute respiratory syndrome or SARS. And they got the message that because this, this kind of virus is so dangerous and just can get into societies and cause such a lot of suffering, that you have to be on the defence right from the start. And you have to continue to be on the defence because the virus hasn't gone away. That's why this new announcement from uh, the UK that I'm hearing of actually training a lot of people to assist with identifying people who've got the disease and helping them to isolate and tracing their contacts and helping them to isolate, that's going to be the key to the new life that we're talking about because we're going to have to be on the defence against this disease for the foreseeable future until some kind of vaccine is available that everybody can access. But I just heard your clip from Chris Whitty, which is an important one, that it's going to be some time before the vaccine is available with sufficient volume and tested for safety. So we're going to have to be able to learn to live with this virus for the foreseeable future in ways that don't lead to large sections of the population, for example, older people being isolated in a way that is just totally unhelpful to them and unhelpful to society. 
it's a kind of experiment in which we're all involved and we're going to have to all work it through together and find the right ways forward because we've never had it before. And yes. I, I kind of, yeah. I'm very positive about what I'm seeing in the UK and in other countries, a sense of people everywhere saying we're all in this together and we've got to come through it together. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And yet there is a strong argument for getting sort of where we can younger people back to work. When I say younger people, I'm, I'm going to include myself at that at, at the age of 51, oh, rather than everyone, <laughs> rather than having everyone on lockdown uh, who, who isn't perhaps vulnerable yes. or elderly. And, and we're going to be talking about this a little bit later in this hour. But, you know, there, there is going to effectively be a, a two tier society. Those people who still have to stay on lockdown, even when we have all the testing and contact tracing until we have that vaccine. That's just the reality, isn't it? I think there are realities, but also at the same time, we've got to really focus on what are the key elements of a society that matter to us. And I, avoiding the isolation of a lot of older people seems to be really, really important. I've been contacted by people in my age group around 70 saying to me, are we ever going to see our younger relatives again or are we going to be prevented yeah. from seeing them? And over time, we'll establish the right way of doing this. At the moment, it seems a bit frightening. But what will happen is we'll work out the right protocols for protecting ourselves, protecting other people, and making certain that we can still go on with life. A little bit like behaviour had to change when we discovered that the virus causing AIDS, the HIV, was carried through sex. It didn't mean that sex stopped. It just meant that we found ways of being intimate without uh, actually having to put ourselves at danger. And I think that this will be exactly the same for the COVID. The beginning will be tough and there'll be a lot of anxieties. But because we are ingenious as humans, we will find ways of doing this and they will be shared very, very quickly. So, for example, we'll work out how we're going to deal with the need to protect ourselves. We'll work out the right role for face coverings. We'll be guided by the evidence and the evidence will evolve. But all together, we will find ways through this. And, and actually, I think just if you don't mind me saying so, Julia, because the COVID is exposing some of the fragilities in our societies anyway, for example, as we heard just now on the relationship between social care and hospital care, we will find that we have to work these things out fast because we can't go on with the problems that have existed for so long because they will create greater uh, vulnerability to the COVID. So mending things that have actually not been working yeah. right for some yeah. time. We may come out of this, yeah. We may come out of this stronger, uh, as you say. And I have to say, I, I do think there has been some incredible community spirit as well. And I think yeah. the bonding, and I think a lot of families, a lot of families really struggling right now. A lot of people, particularly whether they're very young or elderly, isolated on their own, really struggling. But people going out of their way to help people, complete strangers, uh, and and families having a chance to come together and spend time together. Okay, maybe a bit more quality time than perhaps a lot of parents would have wanted. Yes. But um, we, we we may well come out of this uh, forward. And it's nice to hear your positivity as an expert in this field. How positive are you? How optimistic are you about not just how we can test and contact trace and how we can learn to live with this virus, but in terms of vac the vaccination? These human trials start today in Oxford. Uh, there's so much hope. But you say Chris Whitty is trying to, you know, he, he's not putting a damper on it. He wants us to be realistic about this. But um, how hopeful are you that we will actually say by the end of the year, see some sort of rolling out of a vaccine? I'm hopeful that a vaccine will be developed. I don't think it's beyond the capacity of science to find a way to do it. And the incredible collective effort by scientists all over the world 
to really come on come out with a viable vaccine is really good all i'm just saying is it takes time i've, I've watched how other vaccines have been developed against other diseases and there are lots of steps between having a candidate vaccine, even uh, using it with human volunteers, as we're hearing is starting to happen now, and then all the way through to having the vaccine available, tested, found to be safe, found to actually work, and then produced in sufficient quantity that it can get to the people who need it. So all I'm saying is, yes, I'm pretty certain it will come, but I really do not like putting a date on it, saying it will be by the end of the year or it will be by the middle of next year. Uh, it, we will get it. But in the meantime, every one of us is going to have to be thinking hard about how we behave, how we work, how we behave at work, how we behave socially, so that we are not exposing ourselves or, more importantly, others to dangers as a result of this virus. Just one particular thing that I want everybody to remember. The, the, the area where it's been totally awful is in residential care, where we've seen the virus come into places where older people have been cared for uh, residentially and, and leading to a lot of suffering and death. And it's so finding ways to continue to care for older people, particularly in residential settings, without staff having to go and be virtually in isolation themselves, is going to be one of the very important challenges we as a society have to deal with. Because even if I get the COVID and I'm only mildly affected, I have a huge responsibility not to go and take that virus to other people who might then go, go on and get really, really ill. It's that sense of not just being responsible by myself, but being how I behave. That's what's going to emerge. And that's going to be the hallmark of societies that are able to be strong in the face of this virus for the weeks and months to come until we've got a vaccine. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Online, on DAB, and on the Talk Radio app, Talk Radio. Northern Ireland Secretary uh, Brandon Lewis, good morning to you. Hi, can good morning. You? Oh, you can hear me wonderful, yes. yes. The vagaries of everyone talking remotely. Thank you very much for joining <laughs> us here on Talk Radio. Um, and can I just start, first of all, with just talking about what happened at Prime Minister's Questions yesterday. Uh, so Keir Starmer said, uh, accused the government of saying that we were slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on protective equipment, and now slow to take up offers from British firms uh, for that uh, PPE. Is he right about any of that? Uh, no, surprisingly, I, I don't think he is. I think all the way through this, we have been guided by the economic, the, the advice of our um, scientists and our medical advisors to point under their advice the best interests of health across the country. We've seen in the last twelve hours, we have absolutely been out there asking businesses to help. Whether it's in my constituency or in. Northern Ireland, I've seen businesses, whether they're gym producers now doing hand sanitizers, sporting good producers, producing gowns that we've shipped from Northern Ireland over to the mainland GB as well. Um, that's a brilliant joint effort across the country. But, uh, but I do appreciate there will be companies out there who have offered to get involved and to help. I think there's something like I saw 8,000 companies. Well, the reality is, although they should have all had a response, and I understand that they have had a response, Actually, going through those, there is a capacity issue for people to get through that 8,000. I think there are over 3,000 of those now to make sure that they are able to provide things that the NHS and our health service actually needs of the right quality. That's a very big piece of work, and we're working through that. But it is this joint effort that has meant that we've been able to keep this curve as flat as we have done in this country. 
Well, indeed, and I think a lot of people are very relieved to hear that we are past that peak, but we're at the plateau. It's, we're waiting for it to uh, to go down consistently. But there has been so much criticism of, of some specific aspects of, of, of the government's handling of this, particularly the issue of PPE and the protective equipment. Um, Rachel Reeves, who shadows uh, your colleague Michael Gove, uh, gave a list of suppliers uh, yesterday in a letter that you know, haven't been contacted back of the 8,000 that have contacted the government offering uh, to help uh, supply here in the UK. It would appear, though, that uh, quite a lot of those suppliers are, are people who've you know, never supplied such items before, don't even, some of them, you know, don't even have a factory or, or the like. Yeah. Um, how, how difficult has it been uh, to work through all, all these issues? We know the whole cabinet is looking at that. You're obviously looking after Northern Ireland. Um, the, the, there is an issue where, where, in terms of trying to sift through these suppliers, but there is also an issue, is there not, with bureaucracy uh, in the NHS, in Public Health England. We've seen perhaps a worse problem in England than in Wales and Scotland. And that actually, uh, with all due respect, some people just need to pull their fingers out. Well, look, we all want to see everything moving as quickly as possible. I mean, look, there's no no doubt we want to see that. But the reality is, I think, as you just rightly outlined, Julie, when we've had some 8,000 companies come to us offering to get involved and to help, there is a process to go through. And look, I'm not going to apologise for a bit of bureaucracy where it's appropriate. And I'm, I'm one of the first to try and cut through bureaucracy wherever I can. I have done throughout my career. But in this, where we're looking after people's health, where we're looking after the care and the protection of frontline health and emergency workers and others. We've got to make sure that, the, the, for example, with PPE, the, the equipment that we bring in, the equipment that we use is actually good enough and up to the right standards. So it is right and appropriate that they go through those offers, make sure that they're the right equipment, that it's PPE we need, because although there's stories in, at different times around PPE, obviously there's lots of different bits of PPE. So, for example, we sent five and a half million pieces of PPE over to Northern Ireland, but Northern Ireland sent us quarter of a million gowns at the end of last week because they've got the gown producers there and the capacity to do that. So it does vary. We've got to make sure the PP that's being offered is A, what we need, and B, to the right quality uh, for the stringent standards that we need. So I think that is right and appropriate, but we are working to get through them to make sure we harness this. And one of the things that's been highlighted, the danger of picking out individual cases is Rachel Reed's letters are very good examples. I saw um, one of the, one media outlet quite rightly gone through some of those companies and highlight exactly as you said some of them are companies that have only just started to exist have no manufacturing ability and yet we still have to go through all of those to just check if they are people who can contribute in a positive way so it does take time. Okay, well, let's also just talk about, uh, you know, the, the testing. General Sir Nick Carter, the Chief of Defence Staff, is now saying the military is going to get involved in taking the tests to the people who need them rather than people having to drive sometimes, you know, a couple of hours round trip to a, a testing centre that's very far away. Uh, um, yes. and, and, and also getting involved in PP supplies as well. Um, it, it does fundamentally, does, do you think things are going to change now we've got the military involved and their sort of experience that they have in terms of delivery, which is very different in terms of what Public Health England can manage? Yeah, look, there's no doubt the military have got a phenomenal ability, particularly on logistics. We saw what they did with the Nightingale Hospital. I think that was just an astounding piece of work with everybody through the health service and the, and the military coming together in that logistical um, ability to deliver that so quickly. But we are looking at how we can improve things all the time. This is what our scientific advisors, our experts and our medical experts are doing all the time in the Department of Health and, the, and Matt Hancock's brilliant team there. And what we're seeing with tests is we've got this capacity that's way above as, as has been outlined over the last week in a range of um, interviews, the capacity way above what the demand has been. So we're looking at how we can ex extend the access to people, firstly by moving it beyond just the NHS to obviously care homes, care home workers and residents, but also frontline emergency staff. And one of the best ways we can get the demand to move up 
is as we now develop that ability to get some tests to people in their homes rather than people, as you say, well, having what? to go to test centres. Although we are doubling roughly to, from 27 to 50, the number of centres as well over the next week. It's well, what about month. people like me and people, I mean, I know an awful lot of people, whole, virtually all of my family uh, came down with what we're pretty sure was coronavirus. Why can't we go and get ourselves tested? If there's, I, mean, I would never want to take a test away from an NHS worker or someone who needs it, but if, there's someone, if these aren't being used, I'm willing to drive a, a couple of hours to go and get a test and come home. Why can't can't I get a test? Why can't my people listening to the show right now go and get a test? Well, there's a, a, a couple of points to that. First of all, if you have had an illness where you think you may have had coronavirus, as you outlined, Julia, right now, obviously, you could be tested and find that you don't have it at the moment. We don't yet have the test that can tell you in a reliable way whether you've had it in the past and have now got some immunity. That is work that's ongoing, and it's, but it's not with us just yet. But for people who have got those symptoms, ultimately, yes, we want to get to a point where we can test everybody who needs to be tested. That's the next stage of development. We've got to make sure that the tests that we've got are available in the first instance to the NHS workers on the front line who need them. Then as we've expanded that to the frontline care home workers and residents as well, and we're then out to police and fire and the emergency services more generally. As we expand, as we get to that 100,000 a day that Matt is determined to reach, I'm confident we will reach by the end of the month, the next week, as we then go beyond that, we can then start to expand further. We've got to make sure that we can satisfy the demand with the supply that we have got. And we focus that in the area that is needed most. And I think that's the pathway that we've taken under the advice of the medical and scientific advisors. Across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Let's talk about really serious concerns about delays to people getting uh, cancer uh, uh, um, checks by the uh, consultants and getting referrals for treatment as a result of the NHS's unremitting focus on coronavirus. How dangerous is this? Uh, reports yesterday that 2,700 uh, cancer cases were being delayed every single week. Well, let's talk to Sarah Woldenoff, who's the Executive Director of Policy and Information at Cancer Research UK. Good morning to you, Sarah. Morning. Um, this is a very big concern and, and there were lots of people warning about this really early on that when we focus on just one issue and the NHS effectively closes down to routine operations uh, and, and anything non-urgent uh, that actually uh, we can actually see a knock-on effects that can actually be far more devastating for far more people. Cancer Research UK has, has looked at the number of, uh, of referrals to by doctors for urgent hospital appointments or checks and you've seen a drop by 75% since the start of the coronavirus outbreak. Now, we suddenly haven't seen a cure for cancer, have we? So this is a very big worry that we've got people who are concerned about uh, about a lump or, 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 or something else that might be, be a sign of cancer, not going to their GP and not being referred even if they do. What's going on? Yeah, it's a, it's a huge concern. And I think part of what's happening is people have absolutely heeded the message, stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. Um, but, but probably a little too much if they suspect cancer, if they're worried about signs and symptoms. So we're hearing um, that, you know, GP surgeries or, and, and of course a lot of appointments are happening, happening virtually, but everything is eerily quiet. We're talking to GPs who are saying they really want patients to come forward, but they're not. And when we've looked at the figures, um, you're absolutely right. We've seen about a 75% drop in urgent referrals. Now, that's not the only way that patients get referred for onward checks. 
complex, but it's a, it's a major way that cancer gets diagnosed. And it's when people go to the doctor, a doctor suspects cancer and urgently, within two weeks, refers them for diagnostic tests. Um, and that's down by 75%. Um, and that has an immediate knock-on effect. So you're absolutely right. We anticipate that flowing through to many thousands of cases of cancer not being diagnosed each week. And that's compounded by the fact that screening is essentially on hold um, yeah. for cancer. And about 200,000 people each week would be seen um, across the UK uh, for their bowel, breast and cervical screening programs. And again, that will have an immediate knock-on effect on the numbers of cancers that are diagnosed early. And we know survival rates from cancer are massively, massively dependent on on people being diagnosed early. When we do see other countries which do have higher survival rates, often it is not out of the treatment they get. It's the fact that they get referred for that treatment much quicker. So this is going to be crucial. There is a genuine fear now among medics. This isn't a sort of weighing up, you know, health and wealth, but the lockdown and the focus of the NHS on on, on coronavirus could actually mean more people dying in, in, in coming months and years. Uh, from other issues like cancer than from coronavirus. And and look, let's be honest about this, often a lot younger people, perhaps people who have got perhaps an expectation of more healthy years of their life. I, I, and, and this is a real issue that we need to tackle, isn't it? How do we tackle it, though? Is there, a time, is there now a call, given that we are, we're told, uh, at the peak, on the plateau, on the way down, if we carry on with the lockdown, that actually the NHS should be returning to normal in terms of its treatment of other non-coronavirus uh, issues? Well, it's one of the reasons we've spoken out because we are really concerned about um, the need for cancer treatment to get back to some version of normal as soon as possible. There are plans afoot. I mean, many of these underway to create cancer hubs. The idea is that these are as free of COVID as possible. So a a designated part of a hospital or a a standalone cancer centre can be used for cancer treatment. In order to do that, and this is something we've been quite concerned about, you must test, test, test. You've got to test patients, staff, asymptomatic healthcare workers. You've got to do it regularly. You've got to do it, you, you, you know, it's got to be really widespread. And that would give both patients and staff the reassurance we need. As you know, many patients are, cancer patients are immunosuppressed. So they'll be at an increased risk of COVID in, in infection and complications thereafter. So it really is critical that we can give everyone reassurance that, look, it's okay to start cancer surgery um, and ramp up chemotherapy and radiotherapy again, yeah. um, because we can be assured that it's a relatively safe environment. And, yeah. you know, as we heard from the chief medical officer last night, COVID isn't going away. So if we're to get cancer treatment back up and running, some version of normal again, um, then I we're supportive of cancer hubs but in order to to make them successful you've got to ramp up the testing online on dab and on the talk radio app talk radio thanks for listening to today's julia hartley brewer coronavirus update please don't forget to like comment and most importantly subscribe and you can catch me live on the talk radio breakfast show every weekday from 6 30 till 10